I'd like for us to go back this evening to some of the scenes of the cross and focus especially on Matthew 27. And I'd like for, um, I'd like for you to help with this project this evening. We're going to focus on, on the blood. We're going to keep our minds on the blood. On the blood. Sunday morning we had the opportunity to look at a comparison between Jesus and Barabbas. And you recall that Barabbas was known for several things. He was a notorious prisoner. He was known to lead in, in rebel attacks against the governments. He was known as a robber, a thief. He was also known as a murderer. So in one sense, we think about Barabbas being a man who has blood on his hands. Blood on his hands. We remember Proverbs 6 that condemns hands that shed innocent blood. So Barabbas would fit uh, those categories there in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. But I want us to go further. I want us to notice how that the blood of Jesus is seen throughout Matthew 27 here. And so it begins in verse 3 through 10 with Judas. Okay, so the Lord's blood, Judas. What does Judas say about the blood of Jesus? What does Judas say? Look in your Bibles. What does Judas say about the blood of Jesus? That's right, Brother Mark. Judas says, I have betrayed innocent blood. What are the thoughts and lessons we can learn from this episode where Judas comes with his, how many pieces of silver? His 30 pieces of silver. And what does he do with them? What does he do with his 30 pieces of silver? He throws them back at the chief priests and, and the others uh, that he had made the deal, with, with, with whom he had made the deal. Throws them back. Okay. Let's do a little reading. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he he repented, he changed his mind, and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying what kind of blood? Innocent blood. It would be a good study as you study these chapters here in the latter part of the gospel accounts. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23. John 18, John 19. See how many times Jesus is declared innocent, really by those who didn't, didn't really care for him. It was just plain as day that he was innocent. But the idea of Jesus being innocent goes a lot further than just those declarations. We know that this was part of God's plan that an innocent life would be offered in exchange for the guilty. <coughs> And there could only be one that could bring that sort of sacrifice, and that was the Son of God, 
himself. So I have sinned. I have sinned. Another good study to do okay, would be to take that phrase, I have sinned, and run it through the Bible. There's several occasions when people have said, I have sinned. It makes for a very good study. I automatically think of David, of David, when Nathan the prophet, 2 Samuel 12, came and told David the real news about what had been going on. David had been involved with Bathsheba. He had conspired to end the life of Uriah. And God sent Nathan to tell David exactly the kind of thing that he had done. And David says, I have sinned. I have sinned. Later in 2 Samuel 24, beginning of that chapter, David said, I have sinned. There God convicted David of pride because David had taken upon himself to number the people. Number the people. You remember that occasion? David began to say, look at all the people that are now in Israel. Look at all the people that I am commanding around. Look at all the people in my army. He numbered the people. God convicted him of that. He said there, I have sinned. I have sinned. And so Judas comes here and says, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. Well, let's keep reading here. Verse number uh, 4. They said, What is that to us? You see to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went out and he hung himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. Blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers, and this fulfilled a prophecy uh, from Jeremiah. What does that tell you about these chief priests and elders? Can you say the word hypocrite? All of a sudden now, they're interested in the law of God. All of a sudden now, they're interested in what might be pleasing to God. What about the fact that you are leading an innocent man to death? Not just an innocent man, but the Son of God. Does that cross your mind here lately, last few minutes, last few hours at all, last few days you've been conspiring about this? Good point, Brent, saying these are the chief priests and elders. Man comes and says, I have sinned. They should be caring for his soul and helping him uh, with what he just said. But instead they said, what is that uh, to us? So they they have gotten what they needed from Judas, and now he can go his way. Any other comments about the blood of Jesus and Judas here in Matthew 27. You know the comments you like to make. This seems to really be a commentary on what Jesus had said earlier in Matthew 23 in his sermon against the Pharisees. Look over to Matthew 23:25. He says, Um, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. And 
He says in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, outwardly appearing beautiful, but within full of dead people's bones and, and all uncleanness. And this seems here to be illustrated in Matthew 27 because you know they don't want to be seen to use blood money. Okay. What are they going to do with this money? Well, we'll do something good with this. We'll go buy us a field here and people can't afford a burial. They'll have a place to bury. But Jesus sees, the Lord sees, God sees right through all this uh, hypocrisy. Okay. All right? So, blood and Judas. Now look down to verse 24 and notice the blood of Jesus and Pilate. What does Pilate say? What does Pilate say about the blood of Jesus? What is, what is his reaction here? Right. He says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Verse 24 says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. Now, that tells us quite a bit. Pilate is appointed by Rome to keep the peace. Keep the peace here in this Jewish territory. Keep the peace. And so he's going to do whatever. He finds himself in a predicament here. He tries, he thought maybe by bringing out Barabbas, surely, surely they would choose for Jesus to be released and not this murderer, not this notorious prisoner to be released. But they didn't, he didn't understand how much they hated uh, Jesus. Okay. So they asked for the release of Barabbas. So that didn't work. That didn't work. So he's got to... He's eventually, he's going to choose what would be in his mind and in the people's minds the lesser of two evils, and that is to choose Barabbas to be released and send Jesus to the cross. But he, he, um, he felt like a riot was going to come on, and that's what would get him in trouble with uh, Rome. Not so much that he's going to get in trouble for allowing a, a lowly Nazarene to be crucified, but rather... If a tumult comes, if a, if a riot breaks out, that's where, that's where he, would, uh, he would arise the attention of Roman officials because they wanted commerce, they wanted, they wanted tax money, they didn't want riots uh, taking place. Okay. So this is the position of Pilate. Do you feel sorry for Pilate here? Do you feel sorry for him? No, I don't either. No. He could resign, or he, he could be a man of character. He could get out of this place. Nobody ever forced him to get into this position that he's in. And he has put himself here, and um, he deserves what he's um, into here. Okay. But what does he say? What does he do, first of all? What does he do? He takes a pan of water. That's right. Washes his hands. He, does he do this in private? So there's an ancient custom in those days where uh, they would take a pan of water and wash their hands in public in front of a crowd in order to declare themselves innocent of a deed that might be in question. Okay. This is hinted at in a couple of places if you want to turn back to the book of Psalms. Um, we'll look at a couple of verses. Psalm 26, Psalm number 26 In verse 6, 
where the writer says, um, well, in verse 5, he says, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. And in 73, uh, verse 13 of the, of the book of Psalms, this is Psalm of Asaph, where he's trying to understand why... Um, why the evil don't seem to be suffering like the good people do. In verse 13 of Psalm 73, uh, In vain have I kept my heart clean, and in vain have I washed my hands uh, in innocence. Okay. There's several other, other references like that in the Old Testament, but that's a, kind of a custom, and so uh, Pilate is using this custom uh, to try to justify himself. Okay. And by the way, is that possible at all? Is it possible to justify yourself? It's just not. But it was a very popular thing among uh, leadership, among the leadership in those days. Okay. You remember Jesus telling the story of the, of the Pharisee and the um, tax collector who went to the temple to pray over in Luke 18, verse 9. Well, Introducing this parable, it has it like this in Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So Pilate was trying to justify himself, and that does never work. But if we are not, I think you'd agree, if we are not following the Lord's covenant for us today, his will, his his commandments for us today, then we would end up doing the same thing. If we feel like we can leave off certain parts of God's will or if we can go our own way even for a little while, then we are doing the same thing we are attempting to justify ourselves. And so notice how that, that Pilate here is trying to avoid a riot. And so he's going to do what is politically correct or politically advisable. I'm sure he had, pe had people around him advising him to make this go away, release Barabbas, send Jesus to the cross, but it didn't necessarily go away. But, um, all right. So he tells them, just like the chief priests up there in Matthew 27, verse 4, Pilate says here, see ye to it. He says, I'm washing my hands of this matter. You see to it. In other words, he's trying not only to declare himself innocent, but he's trying to pass this on to somebody else. This is, he's trying to say, this is no longer my issue. Okay? I'm clean from this. You see to it. Okay? But before God, he just cannot uh, do that. Okay? But he's trying to play the victim is what he's trying to do. He says, I'm, I'm a victim here. I've tried to set this man free. They won't let me. And so um, I'm washing my hands this. And so see here, you got the blood of Jesus and Judas, and you had the blood of Jesus and Pilate, and then you got the blood of Jesus and the mob, because how does the mob respond to Pilate here? What do they say? Verse 25. Yeah. His blood be on us. What do you think about that? Do you think they knew what they were saying? How do you explain a group of people, many of them, many of them, 
are followers of the Mosaic law. How, how do you explain them saying something like this? His blood be on us. Do you think they knew what they were saying or are they carried away in an emotional frenzy? It's most likely an emotional frenzy. You know, in, during some of the riots of last year, I noticed, I listened to some reporters who would walk in the midst of a crowd, and they would ask people, do you know why you're out here? Do you know what the, the issue is? And they, they didn't know. <laughs> they didn't know. It was so, it was sad and very tragic, of course, people getting hurt and destruction everywhere, but they didn't know. They didn't know. They had been stirred up. And the, and the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and, and elders and the scribes, they had been out there in the crowd stirring people up into a frenzy. Okay, so this is most likely an emotional frenzy. And I've, I've seen that. I've seen that in congregations. I've seen people do that personally, getting stirred up over nothing, over nothing. And later they realize that was nothing, but they somehow they get stirred up about it. So it's something that we would need to to uh, be on top of and make sure that we're, we're being more like Christ in these kinds of matters. I, I remember, um, you know, when you think of emotion or frenzy, you automatically think about Little League Baseball, right? I mean, it just comes in your mind. Right? Well, if you had my experiences, you would. So, um, I was ignorant enough to become a Little League Baseball coach during my college years. I wasn't very, I'm not bright now. I certainly wasn't bright then. Okay. So I remember one time, it was a playoff game, and I'm over there on third base, and I'm just standing there wondering if we're going to come back and win. I look over to, the, to my right, and there is a mom there, and she's got her hands on the chain link fence, and she is making that fence do the wave. She's making, and that, that fence is moving, and that mom's not even five foot, eight foot. Oh, she is into this game. I just stood there looking at her thinking, you know, it's not this big a deal. I mean, we want to win, but it's not this, this big a deal. Emotional frenzies are out there. Over in John uh, nineteen fifteen, the Jewish people uh, said this to Pilate. Pilate said, uh, do you want me to crucify your king? And you remember what they said? Yeah, we have no king but Caesar. All right. That's a, that's a big, if these are Jewish people saying that, because God is well known as their king in, in the Old Testament uh, literature. And the, the idea of that is presented again and again. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. Okay. So notice that the blood of Jesus and the mob here and the emotional frenzy that's involved here. But then next notice the uh, blood of Jesus and the mob's children. Because they don't just say, his blood be on us. They said what? His blood be on us and our children. Okay. Probably not knowing this, but this teaches us some things. They probably weren't meant, meaning to teach something instructive here, but it's interesting. It is true that our actions and habits are going to be passed down to the next generation. 
That's the way that happens. Okay. You remember the giving of the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20, and it talks about how that these, um, these uh, keeping of the commandments were to last until the second and third and fourth generation of those that love me. Okay. And so it is true that whether it's good habits and good following of the Lord or whether it's bad habits and bad philosophies, that's going to be passed on to the children. Okay. And also, not only that, but oftentimes the consequences of one generation is, is borne by the next generation, good or bad. Now, I feel like many of us, especially here at church, we are standing on the shoulders of some spiritual giants. I feel like the people have gone before us by and large, have just followed the Lord, and we are blessed by what they have done uh, before us. But also, the iniquities and sins of one generation is also borne uh, by the next one that comes along. Even, even if the next generation has no interest in their iniquity, sometimes the consequences of that is, is borne out. And so they said, our, his blood be on us and our children, and our children. Okay. Now, of course, going back to Ezekiel uh, 18, 3 and 4, the teaching there is that each generation is responsible uh, before God. No matter what is happening around them, no matter what the previous generation has or has not done, the next generation is responsible before God. And what was happening there in Ezekiel's day was people had this saying, the, the mothers and fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, it's not our fault that we're involved in all these iniquities. It's, it's our parents' fault. Okay. And they've done this to us. And Ezekiel came along and said, the soul that sins, it shall die. Ezekiel 18 20, Ezekiel 18, uh, 4. The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, and the father shall not bear the iniquity of the son. So they needed to learn to stand up before God uh, themselves, individually. So. so you see the blood of Jesus and Judas, the blood of Jesus and Pilate, the blood of Jesus and the mob, the blood of Jesus and the mob's uh, children. Okay. Now, I want us to think for a moment about those guilty stains of sin. Okay. What is that song, Aaron, that says, uh, lose all those guilty stains? Yeah, I'm looking at you and then Paul, because either one of you are going to know it. So, uh, I'm trying to think the title of it. What's the title? Yeah, you're all over. Taking just a little sidetrack here into some songs. Okay. It's called There Is a Fountain. 
Okay. There is the fountain. What song is that? 172, there is the fountain. Okay. So through that fountain, we can lose all those guilty stains. Be turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5 and analyze this for a second. Acts chapter 5, down around verse 28. Remember how that Peter and John have been in custody a couple times for healing a lame man, and the angel would let them out of the, and they go back to the temple, preaching Jesus again, picking up Acts chapter five twenty-seven, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, "Now, in this interesting, this Jesus thing did not go away. You see." Release to us Barabbas. Okay. And they thought the Jesus thing was going to go away. But here they are. They said, uh, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, isn't this what they had just asked for? His blood be on us and our children. Well, this is it. You see, sin brings guiltiness to us. And even, in a sense, the guiltiness of the blood of Jesus. Right? And so, where, whereas we were not there, you know, we sing that song Sunday, were you there when they crucified my Lord? We weren't there in person, but in a sense... With our sins, our sins caused Jesus to go to the cross as well. You remember that statement over in Hebrews 6, verse 6, as the apostle discusses those who would, who would fall away from the faith. He says, you have crucified afresh the Son of God. Remember that? That implies that, that our sins, uh, whether... Uh, it's as we grow up and learn to sin or whether we fall away from Christ, no matter what sin it is, our sin is part of this of the necessity of Jesus having to die on the cross. Okay. So his blood be on us and then but as you get over in the, in the early part of the church, Acts five, twenty eight, they're teaching in such a way that they intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, this didn't happen by accident. Because if you look at the sermons of Peter, you'll see that that's exactly what he intends to do. Boy, Peter found his courage. Acts 4, verse 10, for example. Acts 4, verse 10. Peter said... Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, notice that, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. You crucified. Peter said, you crucified. Look at Acts 3, uh, 14 and 15. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Acts three fourteen. see that? In verse 15, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead 
To this we are witnesses. And you know the day of Pentecost sermon by heart, don't you? Okay. Acts 2.23, Acts 2.36, Whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Okay. The reason they were feeling this guilt was because Peter had been putting it to them. He had been preaching the gospel. So we need to realize the blood of Jesus and the guilty stains that go along with that on every sinner. On every sinner. But also implied here is the blood of Jesus and our our job, our responsibility of, you see here in Acts 5.28, they had filled Jerusalem with this teaching. See, that's that's why we feel, that's why we've got to be doing this ourselves because people have to feel the guilt of, of what they've done before God. They've got to feel it. And the only way for them to feel that guilt, and for all of us, is to teach and teach and teach and teach and teach. Okay. They feel Jerusalem. Okay. And that's why we try to make every effort, not just one effort, but every effort, every effort to get the, the word out, whether it be by paper or by, by video or streaming or whatever we can do, in person, door knocking, VBS, whatever it might be doing. One reason that we began um, House to House, Heart to Heart years and years ago was um, when we were in school, Brother Winkler said, uh, you know, you can't go door knocking at an apartment complex. You can't. You cannot go door to door in an apartment complex. And more and more of those are being built. More and more of those have come up over the years, and more and more of those will be built. Okay. Those people in those apartment complexes need the gospel. How are you going to get it in there? Well, one way is through a, house, a paper like house to house. And it doesn't have to be house to house, but something needs to go into that. And you look up there at that big, you know, four-story apartment complex and all those families there, they need the gospel. They need to feel the, the, the stain of the blood of Jesus. So they filled Jerusalem with this uh, teaching. Now turn over to Acts 20. It's very important to connect this to Acts 20. You remember Paul saying this. Acts 20, verse 26. He's having this discussion with the elders at Ephesus. Acts 20, 26. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So if we don't teach, what does that mean? According to this passage, what what happens if we don't do the teaching that we're supposed to do? Paul said, I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, I'm innocent of your blood, okay? So what if he had not done that? He'd be guilty. It's not just about receiving initial forgiveness of sins but through the blood of Jesus, but it is about filling the earth with the teaching of the gospel. If we don't, then again, we have guilty stains on our hands. It's just that important. Paul said, I declare to you the whole counsel of God. So all the truth to all the people all the time. That's our mission. And Paul sets it uh, for us. This is like that watchman, you know, that 
Ezekiel 33 talks about Ezekiel uh, 33. If you write in your Bible, you'll want to write Ezekiel 33, 1 through 6 in your column here next to Acts 20, 26 and 27 because he talks about that watchman and if the watchman does not warn about the intrusion that could come, then the blood of the people that get hurt or get killed is on his hands. But if he warns them and they don't listen, then their blood is not on his hands. Or rather, he has done his duty. And it's very similar to what we face as well. Our, our responsibility is greater than any one city or any physical harm. Our, our responsibility is toward the souls. Okay. So notice the little trick that we've taken here with Jesus' blood and Judas and Pilate and the mob and the mob's children, and they say, his blood be on us and our children. Well, in a sense, you're right. Okay. But how, do pe- how are people going to know about that? If, if, how would they have known about that if the apostles had not been out there teaching and putting their lives on the line in so doing? And then that takes us to the next part where if we don't do the teaching, then we are guilty as well. All right. So here in Matthew 27, what, what further comments do you want to notice? As Paul talks about doing the whole counsel of God, remember, he's not, being, he's not selective okay, in his teaching. People need to hear all of it. As uh, the Apostle says there in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. We need all of what God has to say uh, to us. It, wouldn't it be wonderful if people would, would uh, think more about what God wants to say to us through his word and instead of thinking about the, the messenger who's trying to bring the word? People get hung up on, on the messenger and they don't get to the message, but the message is so critical. Paul was not selective. He wasn't trying to he wasn't trying to please a part of the crowd. He was just getting the word out there. Time was passing away. He had a responsibility before God. Now going through Matthew twenty seven here, whose blood have we not mentioned yet? And stopped and focused on. Well, what have we not focused on? Well, really, Jesus' blood, the power of Jesus' blood. In the midst of all this confusion comes one of the greatest gifts given to us, and that is the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. And so after Pilate releases Jesus to be crucified, what do they do? Well, that word scourge, what does that mean, Brother Paul? Scourge. Scourge. What is scourge? Yeah. A whipping. Whipping. Now, we're out of time, but we could easily notice from the Old Testament that God was going to bring about a death of his son, not just any manner of death, but a death that would include a lot of blood. And this is exactly what we see. And it starts with this scourging. Okay. And they would take a leather strap before they would take, send them out to be crucified. 
they take a leather strap and in intermingled in that leather strap are pieces of, of metal and bone. And then they take their clothes off and they just lay bare the back. And Jesus was scourged like this. And a lot of men die from the scourging. But, um, and then he was so weak that he had to have somebody help him bear the cross out to uh, Calvary. But before that happened, uh, the Roman officials decided to play with him a little bit. So they put a robe on him, put a reed in his hand, spit in his face. And what did they put on his head? Crown of thorns. Read that there, right there in Matthew 27. The scourging's there in Matthew 27. Crown of thorns is there. So here comes the blood. Here comes the blood. And we are left with a great deal of gratitude. Even though this is a tragic scene, yet God from this tragic scene brings uh, a great blessing to the world. Where would we be without the blood? So, wanted us to notice this oftentimes in little, you know, we've been reduced to sermonettes now. So in 20 minutes you can't get in all that, all that you want to get in. So there's a lot said about the blood of Jesus here in Matthew 27. Various responses to the blood, but the most important response is what are we going to do personally with the blood of Jesus? All right. Thank you so much for being in class. And we will according that clock on the ledge up there at 745. So we will let that bring it to a close. Um, we just really touched on things here. It is an inspiring study to look at all of these chapters together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's very inspiring. We, we don't, just in one chapter, you don't see all the different things that the pilot says, and responses of the, of the audience and the chief priest. Putting, when you put it all together, it's quite... An amazing scene. Any other thoughts or comments you'd like to share before, before we take a break? <clears throat>